pray, Heavenly Father, now that you would speak to us through this well-known encounter between the risen Jesus and Thomas. We ask it, Father, in the name of Jesus and depending on the filling and the enlightening of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Yes, this is Thomas on Thomas. My mother calls me Thomas still. Actually, all my family do, those my, the fam, my, my family of origin, I'm Thomas. Anyway, Doubting Thomas, have you heard of him? Um, well, he was the follower of Jesus, of course, who featured in that passage we read a moment ago. Thomas is known as Doubting Thomas because, of course, he won't accept that Jesus has been raised from the grave uh, three days after he was put in there dead. Well, the description has stuck. This man has become Doubting Thomas. The label goes with the name. Can we just turn me down slightly, please, on the PA, because I've got a habit of booming, and if I feel I'm already at the top of my levels, I'll be worried about blowing a fuse. So if you think about, you know, we know them, don't we? We know them, Alfred the Great, Edward the Confessor, Ivan the Terrible, Jack the Ripper, Thomas the Doubter. Well, that's just who he is, Doubting Thomas. Or is he? This event, of course, has given Thomas an awful lot of respect. We've, we've inherited a, a, a revolution in the history of human thought. It bubbled up in the Western world about 350 years ago. A powerful idea took hold that you'll be familiar with, without necessarily having ever really thought it through, which is that we should basically doubt everything until we can prove to our senses that something can be accepted. We should doubt everything until uh, it can be proved to our senses. So in other words, doubt has become a virtue. I think of a quote by Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist philosopher, about 100 years ago. He said, The stupid are sure, the intelligent are full of doubt. You're like, ooh, sounds interesting. Well, that's the, that's the, the, the mindset that we have been born into. It's in the air we breathe. And so you can see that Thomas seems basically kind of like the patron saint. The patron saint of rational thinking. He knows dead people can't be raised, and he's an intelligent person. So he says, I will doubt it until it can be proved to my senses. He must see it, and he must touch it, and only then will he believe. So let's explore the story, not only to see if Thomas deserves his reputation as the doubter, also, we need to ask, is he really so rational? That's the question. But most of all, in a way, I think we need to learn from this story how we ourselves can move from doubt to a place of convinced and convicted faith. So I've got three headings, and each one points to an unexpected observation. So here we go. First of all, Thomas's doubt. That's our first heading. And it turns out that Thomas's doubt isn't so rational after all. So, Jesus appeared to his disciples on the evening of the first Easter Sunday. Andrew preached on that last week while I was away. And, um, but we, uh, but we, we know that Thomas was not at that meeting. We don't know why he wasn't, but he probably wished he had been. Because if he had been there, at least he wouldn't have been subjected to all that nonsense from the others who kept on saying, we have seen the Lord. 
Now, of course, I mean, I can understand that feeling. I bet you can from a human point of view. It's not nice to feel left out when everybody else seems to have this other thing going. We've seen the Lord. And they'd be like, Argh. And, of course, it's true that people who've been in the grave three days are not in the habit of re-emerging. And it's fair to say, of course, that overwhelming evidence would be needed to persuade us that it had happened. But is Thomas being rational? Is his refusal to take the other disciples' words seriously as rational as it seems at first? Let's think it through. For one thing, who is this person about whom the claim is made that he was raised? Jesus. Just think about Jesus' CV. Only a few weeks before this, Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the tomb. Lazarus had been in there for four days. Jesus simply commanded and Lazarus walked out of the tomb. Thomas had seen it. And as one of the twelve disciples, Thomas would have known of at least two other occasions, because they're recorded in the other Gospels, where Jesus raised people. So we have the raising of the widow's son in Luke 7, and Jairus' 12-year-old daughter raised in Mark 5. So if, if anyone could plausibly be raised from the dead, surely Jesus is a candidate. And it's not like Jesus had never mentioned the idea of being raised from the dead. Um, consider Jesus' words, spoken again just a few weeks before, before he raised Lazarus from the tomb. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Plus, he had announced many times that he would rise on the third day. He'd said it a number of times. And he had claimed that one day he would speak and that his voice would raise all the dead and everybody of the whole of human history would stand before him as our judge. And now, here are Thomas's friends saying, we've seen the Lord. Jesus himself has been raised. The thing is, it's hardly out of the blue. Not at all. It's actually, it's true to form. And plus, of course, remember, Thomas knew, as well as the other disciples knew, that the tomb had been empty on the first Easter morning and that Jesus' body was missing. He knew that as well as they did. And we can be sure he had no better explanation for it than them. Now, if, I, if, if it was claimed that I, Tom Parsons, had um, been resurrected three days after my death, then fair enough, doubt that all you like, I have never said or done anything that could give anybody the impression that I have the power to rise from the dead. No, I've never done that. But we're talking about Jesus. And Jesus has given every reason in word and deed. So, Thomas, oughtn't you be at least open to the idea that perhaps your friends are telling the truth? Or perhaps he's not open at all. Perhaps he's, in fact, closed-minded. Now, that brings us to his friends, to the other disciples, the people making the claim, the ones saying, we have seen the Lord. Thomas won't believe them. Now, the, my question for Thomas is, Thomas, why do you think they're lying? Because he does. My question is, Thomas, why do you think your friends are lying to you? Do you think they're joking you? 
Although, of course, it's hard to see what's funny if they all know full well that their beloved Jesus is still in the grave. Or alternatively, perhaps they're trying to make themselves feel better by saying, we've seen the Lord. Maybe that's why Thomas thinks they're lying. But again, in my experience of taking many funerals, that doesn't seem to fit. Because the stories that people reach for, for comfort in the face of death, tend to be very vague and very ambiguous. You know, I saw a bird and it reminded me, or I saw a butterfly, or what? It's, it's things like that, there's sort of tenuous, vague, ambiguous things. But this is very definite. We have seen the Lord. It was last Sunday night. We were all there together. He stood among us and he said, very definite. Now, Thomas knows these friends, and it, presumably, if they're still his friends, he knows they're not in a habit of lying. And given what he's heard of Jesus already, and what he's seen Jesus do, and given that he knew that the tomb was empty and the body missing, missing, actually, he had every reason to believe them. He had every reason to believe what they were saying. But instead, he makes that famous demand, verse 25. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. Now, that, 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 is that rational? I mean, suppose Jesus did appear. Is Thomas seriously saying, I will go prodding around in his open wounds? Is he really, is he really thinking that's what's going to happen? Of course not. The whole point is that he's made his mind up already, and he has decided that there is no way that Jesus was raised from the dead. So, in other words, he is not even considering the evidence. He just will not believe it. He's already decided that it is a lie. Now, it is a very good thing to be intellectually rigorous. It is a good thing to ask hard questions, to seek understanding about the things of God. That is a good thing. But that is not what Thomas is doing here. He is refusing to consider the many reasons he already has for faith. In other words, this is not a man in search of truth. This is a mule digging in his heels. He's not exploring faith. It's not that he can't believe because there's no evidence. It's that he won't believe despite the evidence. That's Thomas. Doubts about Faith. Doubts about faith. There are, there are various sorts. There are at least two sorts of doubts about faith. Some people's doubts arise from what we could call um, confusion or just not really grasping it, not really understanding it, ignorance, I suppose. Now, and, and actually, we all go through those periods in our Christian lives, and they're actually healthy periods of questioning that healthy believers go through as our faith seeks understanding. We say, Lord, I don't understand this. And um, it's a sign of growth that we hit these periods of confusion and ignorance and, we, um, uh, and we, we, we ask, we read, we investigate, we think, we pray and we, we, we move on. Good. That's good. That's a healthy kind of doubt. But Thomas's doubt is very different. Thomas's doubt is in fact just stubbornness. That's what it is. Stubbornness. I mean, we understand it, of course, but that's what it is. It's stubbornness. 
His demand for proof is not an open-minded step towards making a reasonable inquiry, towards reaching a kind of logical conclusion. It's a way of justifying his refusal to even consider the evidence. Do you know anyone like Thomas? Are you like Thomas? I don't know, you might be. I've met some. Thomas's favorite doubt, a famous doubt. It turns out not to be quite so rational after all. Okay, here we go, moving on. Thomas's confession. It turns out that this man should be better known for his faith than for his doubt. So, since Easter Sunday, the disciples have been saying, we've seen the Lord. And what a moment it is when exactly a week later, Jesus appears to his friends again. And this time, Thomas is present. And here comes Jesus, stands in the middle of them, greets them, peace be with you. And then he addresses Thomas in words that must have shaken this famous doubter to his very core. Jesus says to him, Thomas was thinking, God, I know these words. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put them into my side. Oh, Thomas thinks he Those are my words. And he knows them. Jesus knows Thomas's demands already. And as Thomas stands there stunned, Jesus gives the rebuke, stop doubting, Thomas. And then the command, believe and believe. What must Thomas have felt like? Can you put yourself in his position? Hard. What must he have felt like? Now, note what he does not do. He does not say, oh, excuse me, Jesus, just hold still, will you, for a moment? Just, um, can you just display your side here? No, let, me just, let me just... Oh, yes. He does not apply his tests. Instead... He brings this extraordinary document we have in our Bibles, John's Gospel, to its climax with his confession of faith. Verse 28, my Lord and my God. If you know John's Gospel, you may know that John's Gospel begins by identifying Jesus as God. It says Jesus, the Word, was with God in the beginning and he was God fully equal to the Father, sharing the Father's nature, possessing the very same will, power, glory, wisdom, and action as the Father. This is Jesus, Lord and God. And now, at the end of John's Gospel, he is identified in these terms. No one has said it this clearly in the whole Gospel of John. No one's put it this clearly. But now, in this climactic moment, Thomas hits the full truth on their head. The one, this once crucified, this now resurrected man is at the same time God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the sustainer of all reality, the one to whom we owe every breath. He is Lord and God. And notice that Thomas makes it personal. It's not just, it's not just a kind of a, well, I now deduce that you are Lord and God. It's my Lord, my God. So there's worship in those words. There's obedience as well. As Jesus effectively is recognizing, as Thomas is recognizing Jesus as his management. You're the one before whom I submit my life. You are Lord and God, and so I acknowledge you as my Lord and my God, and I will live before you 
in worship and obedience and humility. Now, you might know, like to know what happened to Thomas. Some of you will know. Did you know what he did in the years that followed? The church historians from the earliest days confirm that he took the message of Jesus. Do you know where he went? India. Among other places, he planted the church of South India, or the church in South India. There's churches there today are bearing his name. They trace their lineage back to Thomas. See, Thomas's confession, my Lord and my God, turns out actually he should be better known for his faith than for his doubt, really. My Lord and my God. Thomas's doubt, Thomas's faith. What about third, Thomas's legacy? What does he leave us with? Well, here we are. It turns out that we can be as blessed without seeing as he was with seeing. We can be as blessed today as him. See, a transition is about to take place here. Jesus is to leave the world physically. He is to return to the Father, no longer visible to the human eye physically. And so the question is, how will people believe in him when they can't see him or touch him? And the answer is that faith grounded in seeing him has to give way to a faith founded on the testimony of the eyewitnesses. That's what Jesus has in mind in verse 29. Then Jesus told Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, I used to worry about that verse as a teenager and as a young adult, I thought, is, is Jesus saying we need to have blind faith? Is that what he's saying, that we're blessed if we just close our eyes and believe it anyway? You know, contrary to all the evidence, that we just shut our eyes and ignore all the facts and just believe. No, definitely not. Thomas's faith, yeah, came through seeing Jesus, but remember, he actually didn't need the visual evidence. Because the testimony of Jesus himself, along with the, the eyewitness account of the other disciples, that should have been compelling enough. And it could have been compelling enough. The problem with Thomas isn't that he demands evidence before he believes. No, of course we demand evidence before we believe. We, we'd be crazy if we didn't demand evidence before we believed. The problem is that he refuses the words of Jesus, and the testimony of the eyewitnesses. He refuses the evidence. That's the problem. Or, let me put it another way. Thomas refused the evidence that we still have it today. We still have that evidence today. Jesus has returned to the Father, but the eyewitness testimony of the disciples, why, do you know what? It's in my very hand now. And it's probably in yours. It's in our Bibles. What a blessing it was for Thomas to be able to recognize and receive Jesus and to be able to say to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Well, we can do the same based on exactly the same eyewitness testimony that was available to Thomas. The eyewitnesses said, we have seen the Lord. Do we believe them? Do you believe them? Well, Thomas's story 
gives John, the writer here, the perfect opportunity to state his purpose in writing this wonderful gospel of his. Verse 30 to 31, here it is. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples that are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's saying, look, I could have written hundreds of pages about Jesus' miracles and about Jesus' teaching, but I've made a careful selection. So if you read John's Gospel, you'll notice that he records seven miraculous signs. Water into wine, chapter 2. Feeding of the 5,000, chapter 6. Healing of the official son, chapter 4. The lame man, chapter 5. The blind man, chapter 9. The raising of Lazarus, chapter 11, and his own resurrection, chapter 20. Now, none of John's readers saw those events. I didn't see those events. You didn't see those events. Yet John's eyewitness testimony gives every reader, it gives us, sufficient grounds to believe that Jesus is... God's global and eternal king and ruler. That's what the name Christ means. It gives us every reason to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That is, that he shares the very nature of God the Father. Those are the facts. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. These are the facts that John's Gospel, indeed the whole Bible, demonstrates. But again, John's Gospel is aiming, and so is the whole Bible, at persuading us not just that it's reasonable to trust in Jesus, just an intellectual kind of, yeah, no, I agree with that. No, much more. John wants us to experience the life that God gives through Jesus. He wants us to experience Jesus' risen life given to us by the Holy Spirit. That is the heart of the blessing that God wants to give us. That's the heart of the blessing that we can have, even without seeing Jesus with our physical eyes, we can have Jesus' risen life given to us by the Holy Spirit. That's the life we were made for. It's the London Marathon course today, isn't it? That's why I know some people are up there watching, others are here because they can't get to other churches because of the marathon. And um, a lot of us live, in fact, I, I bet all of us can identify with what I call London Marathon start line syndrome. Do you know the London Marathon start line is quite long? If you're at the back of the queue, you must have run a mile. Some of you have done it. You must have run a mile before you even get to the start line. Now, a lot of people, a lot of us, live our lives on a kind of you know, psychological daily level, feeling that we, are, we haven't even got to the start line of life. And so we say to ourselves things like, well, my life will really begin when, and it depends which stage of life you're at, when I've finished my exams, when I've got a place at university, when I've, I don't know, when I've got a job, when I've got a relationship, when I've got children, when I've got, do you see what I mean? And the, pr the problem is, we get to that point where we say my life will begin then and realize that actually we still haven't got life in the sense that we need it. And so we're constantly living in this thing, thinking, well, the starting line is ahead of me. It's because we're built for a life that is not something that we can 
whip up from within ourselves, or that any earthly thing can satisfy, but only the living God can give us through, through Jesus Christ and through the gift of his Holy Spirit in our lives. And this is the life that comes, that is offered to us as we believe. So, that offer stands to all of us. Come, see, believe, live. That's the message of John's Gospel. Come, see Jesus, believe, and live. Um, it stands, that offer, whether we've already come to faith or not. That life begins when a person comes to Jesus for the first time, as Thomas did in a way really here, and says, my Lord and my God. And if you, uh, I don't know, have maybe not arrived at that point yet. Why, I wonder why you haven't arrived at that point yet. It may be that you've never thought about it. Well, that's wonderful. So you can start thinking about it. There's wonderful things here for you. Is it stubbornness, stopping anybody from receiving? You probably know the answer to that deep down. Um, how do we clear up that ignorance and confusion we may have? Well, um, learn, ask. Um, come to Christianity Explored. We're doing a course at the moment, talk to Adam, um, Wednesday nights. How do we get over stubbornness? Do you think, actually, yes, I am that stubborn one. How do we get over it? Open the door of your life, even if it's just by an inch, and say, it's mighty true, Lord, come in. Come in, Spirit of God, show me. Let him do it. Let God bring you to life. By the way, of course, it's believing and trusting in Jesus and in the eyewitness testimonies that bring somebody to life in the first place. It's also how we grow in that life. Those of us who've been believers for a long time, it's, this is, we, we, don't, we don't graduate from this. We must keep going. If we want to grow in this life and experience more of it, we must keep going deeper into these testimonies, trusting them, understanding them, trusting them, understanding them, and growing. So Thomas's doubt, here we go, I'm going to finish, turns out not to be so rational after all. Thomas's confession, turns out he should be better known actually for his faith than for his doubt. Thomas's legacy, turns out that we, all these years later, can be every bit as blessed as he was, even though he got a sighting of Jesus. So come to the eyewitness testimony and see Believe in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Receive him as my Lord, my God, and live. Let's pray as we close. Father God, empower us by the Spirit to trust that Jesus is, to those who believe, to us, everything he has promised to be. Bread of life, light of the world, the true vine, the gate, the good shepherd, the resurrection, the way, the truth, and the life. And so may we experience the fullness of his life always. In his name, amen.